Please do, can I encourage you to turn to Psalm 73. And as you do so, let me just introduce the context of the psalm so that we are better prepared to understand uh, what the Lord is going to say to us. Psalm 73 is the first psalm of the third book of the Psalms. Uh, if you didn't know it, the, psalms, uh, the, the book of the Psalms is divided in five books, and Psalm 73 is right at the beginning of the third book of the Psalms. And indeed, many define this book as the darkest of the, uh, of the Psalter. Uh, like a commentator says, the, book th- uh, the third book of the Psalms has all the flavor of the exile, and Psalm 89, which is the last psalm of that book even ends by describing the crown of israel as defiled in the dust and with a cry how long O lord will you hide yourself forever so these are the words and these are this is the um the meat (laughs) this is the consistency of this book and so we need to understand this in order to, to grasp what Psalm 73 is all about and how that psalm can redeem our souls and encourage us uh, today. Um, now, for us, indeed, uh, today, it can be said that this book represents every time that things that happen don't really make sense to our human mind. The moments when we don't understand why God does, uh, just doesn't solve the problems as we w- would like him to do, full stop. But of course, this book is not about leaving us discouraged, because the Bible is not about leaving us discouraged. This book is about showing us who the real king is, the one whose crown cannot be defiled, and who he is the one to whom we have to look to for salvation. And so having prepared our hearts, let's turn to Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in troubles as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my, uh, my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, 
I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Now, I was encouraged to also read a few verses from this psalm in my own language, just to remind you that God's people is a global people. But I won't be reading the whole psalm, it's quite long, but I will be reading the key verses that I think are important in this psalm and will be touching on. Um, and you may want to follow those in your Bible. First of all, verse 1. This is how it sounds in Italian. Certo, Dio è buono verso Israele, verso quelli che sono puri di cuore. Then verse 17. Finché non sono entrato nel santuario di Dio e non ho considerato la fine di costoro. And then we move to the end of the psalm. We'll be reading verse um, 25 and 26. Chio io in cielo fuori di te e sulla terra non desidero che te. La mia carne e il mio cuore possono venir meno, ma Dio è la rocca del mio cuore e la mia parte di eredità in eterno. Amen. Oh, thank you for that. I think that was sweet to me, actually. <laughs> so... Let's see what God has to say to us this morning through, through this wonderful psalm. Now, I believe I can really prove it. So you might have been expecting for statistics, pictures, but I'm coming to you with something I cannot prove in statistics. But considering our life's experience, and if we look into each other's eyes, I'm sure I'm right, and considering above all Asaph's experience, I believe we can rather confidently say that, maybe more often than not, or closer to, our, to us that we would like to admit, someone finds themselves in that place. Just like the wind and the sea can slowly cause erosion, in the same way, suffering, injustice, disappointment, and the toils of the Christian life in general, let's be honest, can slowly erode our certainties. 
perhaps even creating some unexpressed resentment towards God, a God who appears to us as distant. So we find ourselves in that place. We might express faith in Christ externally, but deeply we know some, some things eroding. The shade of a doubt now is looming over us. And we wonder, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to keep pursuing purity? Is it really worth it to not strike back as we'd like to those who unjustly offend us? To rely on a God who sometimes seems just so distant from us? To pray all the day long when absolute silence or even the opposite of what we've asked seems to be the answer. To give ourselves up for the sake of God's family despite all those problems that are not ours and we would gladly do without. To lead an honest life for the sake of a God who sometimes seems neither to notice or reward us in our own eyes. And this especially when people out there who do not care seem to thrive instead. Now, circumstances may change, but the question that we, mind ourselves, we might be asking ourselves at some point is the same. Is leading a faithful Christian life really worth it? But Psalm 73 wasn't given to us, like the rest of the third book of the Psalms, to discourage us. Far from it. Psalm 73 was inspired by the Holy Spirit not to justify us in our unhelpful introspection or self-pity or doubts, but rather to lift us up above our self-fixation when we look so inwardly that we forget all the rest. The psalm was given to us to encourage us to look high, up high even to the sanctuary of God and to give us an answer without ifs and without buts. Is leading a faithful Christian life really worth it? Yes. Yes, when we keep the end inside. Yes, indeed, absolutely yes, when we keep our glorious God inside. In other words, keeping God at the end, the end inside makes living a truly Christian life really worth the effort. I'll say that again because I believe it captures the, the thrust of the psalm. Keeping God and the end in sight makes living a truly Christian life really worth the effort. Now, I'm sure you've noticed how the language of the psalm is really descriptive, isn't it? Lots of images there. And for this reason, I think it's helpful if we compare this psalm to a, uh, to a, a, um, a picture, a painting, with two portraits in it, two contrasting portraits in it. In the first place, on the one hand, we see the portrait of the wicked and of their destiny. And this will be our first point, the wicked and their destiny. And we'll be looking at verse, verse, uh, from verse 2 to verse 20. And then on the other hand, the contrasting picture is that of the pure in heart and of their destiny. And this will be our second point, the pure of heart in heart and their destiny. And when we'll be looking at verse 21 to 28. So let's have a look. 
more closely to the portrait of the wicked and of their destiny. Now, very surprisingly, a third of the psalm, maybe you felt it as I was reading it, a third of the psalm, that is from verse 3 to 12, is a detailed picture of the wicked. I mean, we could have certainly done without it. We don't want to, to look too much into it. But it's important for us to know who are the wicked. Well, who are they? The psalm answered by saying these are proud people who prosper. The wicked are proud. Surely these are arrogant because of the pride they display, as we read in verse 6. But not just that. These also boast in the violence of their bullying, as verse 6 reminds us. Asaph is also stunned when he considered the evil schemes of their minds in verse 7, and above all, the despising words of their mouths. They don't just speak looking down on those who are weaker than them, as we read in verse 8. Their arrogance is also their default tone when they speak in relation to everything. Verse 9 reminds us that they above all speak against the heavens, that is, against God himself. They say and convince even others to say, as verse 11 reminds us, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? So the wicked are proud. But the wicked are proud who prosper. <laughs> while their pride would be a sufficient reason, this is not the ultimate reason why Asaph seems to be bothered in this song. <laughs> what frustrates Asaph, what he really cannot come to terms with, is their prosperity. Now, you don't need to know Hebrew, but I'm pretty sure you've all heard the word shalom. A famous word, peace, wholeness. We all know that. Isn't that a good word? That's how Asaph is describing this apparent prosperity of the wicked. He wonders, why do these, unlike me, thrive without God and despite being so proud? To an ever-increasing wealth, as we read in verse 12, they add a death in comfort. Verse 4. It even seems, as we read in verse 5, not, that they are not touched by the struggles common to each one of us. Again, it is this apparent prosperity, this apparent shalom, in spite of all the wicked are and do, that confuses Asaph and leads him to confess in verse 16. When I thought how to understand all this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, simply put, I tried to give an explanation to why God allows the wicked to prosper, but to no avail. Now, reading these verses, we are clearly reminded of the existence of the wicked. The Bible calls for those who are hostile to God, the gospel, and the gospel community. And a couple of considerations are therefore here in order. In the first place is the obvious one, that uh, we should avoid thinking that all unbelievers are wicked in this way in the way described in this psalm. I think Keller is fundamentally right when uh, saying, if the world in the Bible is secularism, that which, that is that which worship uh, the present era and rejects the idea of God and is right to call us to judgment for our actions, the wicked are the major promoters of this world system. These are deceived deceivers. Still, still, on the other hand, we should also be aware of naively denying 
the existence of the wicked in the name of an undefined goodness. We live in a society where the wicked have massive presence and impact. We have to be aware of that. In fact, one of the issues that Asaph complains about in this psalm is the fact that God's people, his people, turns to them not finding fault in them. That is why it's important for us to be aware of this category, so that we may not be confused and follow them. We are implicitly warned not to underestimate the powerful attraction of the wealthy, the beautiful, and the mighty ones according to this world. According to the, the powerful attraction of those who set their mouths against the heaven and whose tongue struts the earth, as we read in verse 9. Of those who claim to have the knowledge that the Most High has not, as they say, it is proved by their prosperity. But this picture would be incomplete unless we compare it to their destiny. So we've seen the portrait of the wicked, but let's now look at their destiny. Now, this is when we come across Asaph. I found this man tremendously honest, and his honesty is fairly refreshing, I have to say. In verse 2, he starts saying, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Almost? Nearly? What kept him from falling just in time? But before answering that question, let me say that I don't think that pray, uh, pitying him, looking down on Asaph, or even going super spiritual on Asaph, is the reaction that God's Word wants us, the readers, to have. When we compare the apparent prosperity of the wicked with the struggle of the ordinary believer, I think we too should notice that something is wrong in this world and long for justice, long for the day of justice. This is a normal, actually healthy reaction. I think the real issue is where do we take it from there? Where do we take it from there? Surely, Asaph's first reaction is quite problematic. He seems to have a fixation on one part of the scene, as Derek Kidna, a commentator, says. His own envy pushes him to the edge of that cliff where he asks, as we read in verse 13 and 14, Have I all in vain kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now, if you've ever been to a contemporary art gallery, um, I'm pretty sure you, you have noticed those people who could stare at paintings that I personally wouldn't know where, whether they are upside down or whatever for hours, right? Asaph seems to be a looker too, one of those that looks for a long time. That's why we have that detailed description. Asaph is driving his car not looking at the road or the direction he's going to. And you know where that's going to end. <laughs> if you, my wife keeps telling me, Rocco, look at the road. Rocco, look at the road. Otherwise, I'll drive. You know why. <laughs> and who knows, maybe that might be, or has been, or will be, our problem too. Because Asaph's real problem is that there is too much staring in the wrong direction in this psalm. Verse 3, he clearly says it, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw, when I saw 
And my goodness, he really saw the prosperity of the wicked. And this truly reminds me of another deep staring, that to a forbidden fruit in a garden long ago. Does that remind you of something? Genesis 3? Sin fundamentally as a common root. We want to be like God and have all the answers rather than entrusting ourselves to the one who has all the answers. But we asked, what kept Asaph from falling just in time? Two things, two things. In the first place, you might be surprised by that. It's the community of the believers. If verses 13 and 14 describe the sad, profound troubling that passed through Asaph's mind, verse 15 reveals something extremely precious that kept him from let, let go. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, that is according to his own thoughts, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It was the thought of the effects of his words on the community of the believers that kept him from opening up his mouth and give up. Now, doesn't this speak volume? Doesn't this speak volume about where one's affection and loyalty truly reside? There is a time to speak frankly. But there is also time when it is not wise to say everything that goes through our minds. But there is a second thing, and this is the most important thing that kept him from falling away. The presence of God, the very presence of God. In this psalm there is a clear hinge, there is a clear turning point. Asaph was envious, we read, he was slipping away. And as he will define himself, he was brutish and ignorant, like a beast towards God. Until, until he went into the sanctuary of God, we read in verse 17. He was all caught up in his own self-fixation, introspection. He was unable to think clearly. He was overwhelmed by his hard life. Until, until he went into the sanctuary of God. It is God's presence, the vision of God's holiness, of God's justice, of God's wisdom, of God's unmovable throne that refreshes his heart, preserves him and restores him even to the point of having a deeper faith which is displayed later on in the psalm. He's even brought to the point of discerning the end of the wicked. He went into the sanctuary of God and then, he says, I discerned their end. What's the point, indeed? What's the point of envying this momentary prosperity when there is no real lasting future? This morning, as I was meditating on this, I was thinking of when I went to Israel, I went to Jericho. I mean, you can really stay on dust. This is Jericho, and you look around and you say, Judgment of God has come. What's the point of envying prosperity when that is the end? No better captures this than our Lord Jesus in Matthew 16, 26, when he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
Esau's story indeed is an invitation to stop being anxious for this life and to stop our unhelpful introspection and self-pity and to stop our self-fixation and simply come into God's presence and look up and see the King in all His beauty. Amen. Then, when we see the King in all His beauty, we'll be able to see in perspective and rejoice. Then we will be able to forget all the rest and be freed, freed, utterly freed. Praise be to God. But now, Esau's experience doesn't truly call for a mystical experience. We, we, we'd be wrong if we thought that. This psalm, and especially verse 17, call for the ecstatic vision of God in the ordinary, extraordinary means of grace that He has given us. That is Scripture, that is prayer, and here, here, that is when the believers gather together. This is when we see and experience the presence of God and we are reminded of the right perspective. But there is even more wisdom here that I think we should not neglect. Indeed, in God's wisdom, the prosperity of the wicked is the beginning of divine justice. We have to be aware of that. Their shalom, quote-unquote, is but a false prosperity that, in perspective, will disappear in a moment. We read that in verse 19. Like a dream, verse 20, and indeed, that is a slippery place to be, as we read in verse 18. Biblically, having more and more of what one lasts after is not success, but a sentence. Romans 1.25 truly captures this well, where we read, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Their prosperity is the beginning of their end. We must never doubt God's accounts book will break even in the end. That's a fact. Judgment day, that is the day of God's just judgment, is a fact. And like Asaph, we too should find great comfort in that. So, when we find ourselves in that place, looking inwardly, wondering, is leading a faithful Christian life really worth it? The answer is yes. When we keep God and the end in sight. As we also prayed, Lord, be my vision. That must be our prayer. But this is not all that this psalm has to teach us. This is how we move to the portrait of the pure in heart and of their destiny. Now, this second section of the painting is surely less in your face than the first one than that of the wicked. And yet, we must not miss the beautiful details of this portrait. Now, we'll, we'll highlight four uh, characteristics of the pure in heart, but first let me say that I don't want you to be uh, misled by, by the definition, by the expression pure in heart. This is surely used once, that is at the beginning of the psalm, and yet this is the group to which Asaph, he knows that he's part of that group. This is not a, merely a human moral category, just good God-fearing people. We have to be aware of that. Otherwise, we'll end up reading this psalm in, in a moralistic way, and this is what we don't have to do. 
Instead, the pure in heart are potential wicked. Yes, potential wicked as demonstrated by Asaph's heart, Asaph's story, Asaph's thoughts to whom God has given a new heart by sheer grace. These are pure in heart by grace. These people have a new heart by grace. These are the believers by grace. And pure, in fact, this is their first characteristic, purity of heart is the gift of God. The pure in heart are not pure in themselves, but by virtue of the gracious goodness of God. Firstly, have you noticed that this psalm is framed? Verse 1 and verse 28. The first verse and the last verse is framed in God's goodness. That, there you have it twice. The goodness of God. God is good. He's always good to his people. We read in verse 1. And then in verse 28. God, our, sh our sure good is to be near God. This psalm is framed in a thick golden frame. <laughs> Let's put it this way. And then God's personal revelation to Asaph, which we um, meditated on, on verse 17, must be seen as a gracious act of God. How could a man in such a state like Asaph was be transformed into what the picture of the pure in heart from verse 21 onwards shows us? Who can say, indeed says Proverbs 20 verse 9, who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Indeed, no one unless God does that work. And who else can we see God? And how else, sorry, can we see God uh, if not in Christ himself? John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And by the testimony of the Spirit through Scripture, we too can say with John in verse 14 of chapter 1 of his gospel, we too have seen his glory in the pages of scripture. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is the presence of God. Christ is the one, is the vision of God. He indeed is the temple of God. As we read in, again in verse one, 14 of chapter 1 of John, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But Christ is also the only pure of heart, the truly pure in heart, who gave, as we read in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to purify for himself a people. Christ is clearly visible in this psalm, and we have to be aware of this. But again, as I said before, the risk is to read this psalm in a very moralistic way, not realizing that the main character here is not the wicked person even though there is so much space given to them. And not even Asaph. But the main character here is Christ. Between 1509 and 1511, Raphael, the, the, the painter, he painted a, a, a work of art that is called the School of Athens. You might want to Google it when you go home. The School of Athens. And in the midst of many characters, there are so many characters there, and they are all confusingly speaking to each other, and no one actually is staring in the direction of the, of the one who is looking at the painting. No one. They are all looking to each other, very confusingly speaking to, to each other. And yet, there is one person in the right bottom corner, very small, that is staring at us, the only one. You know who that person is? Raphael himself. He's pictured himself in the painting, staring at the 
are those looking. And this is the same thing in Psalm 73, that we have Christ. In this confusion, looking at us. So that we know that He is the only one that knows who all those people are and why they are there. So, the reason we purify ourselves, the reason we pursue purity of heart, is simply because everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. 1 John 3.3 Secondly, purity of heart is the gift of humility. First, is a gift of God. Second, is a gift of humility. By the gracious goodness of God, the pure in heart, those who are made pure, acknowledge and confess their sins. As we read in verse 21 and 22. Asaph himself confessed, I was envious of the arrogant, right? At the very beginning of the psalm. But then he moves even forward. Because he's not just able to confess his own sin. He's even able to honestly study his own weakness. Verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. This is someone that knows what's going on in their heart. And this reminded me of the words of Robert Murray McShane. Um, he said, as he was meditating on his own life, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I am persuaded ought to I ought to study more my own weaknesses. I am helpless in respect of every lust that ever was or ever will be in the human heart. I am a worm, a beast before God. I often tremble to think that this is true. I feel as if it would be not safe for me to renounce all indwelling strength, as if it would be dangerous for me to feel what is true, that there is nothing in me keeping me back from the grossest and vilest sin. This is a delusion of the devil. My only safety is to know, feel, and confess my helplessness that I may hang upon the arm of omnipotence. How true is that? How true is that? But the portrait of the pure in heart inextricably linked to that of their destiny. Thirdly, we see here that the pure in heart is also the gift of hope. But the gracious goodness of God, the pure in heart, is enabled to see things in eternal perspective. Even though once in deep doubt, Asaph is now certain. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me in glory. Verse 24. Yet, having said all this, you, we, may still be left without a worry, with a worry, assurance. How can I be sure? How can I be sure whether, unlike Asaph, I will not actually stumble and fall? I can see the glorious end of the pure in heart, but will I make it to the end? But if we look intently enough, we'll see that the assurance too is in this painting. Those whom God grasps, he also will never let go of to the end. Asaph says, I am continually with you because you 
hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Isn't this glorious? This is pure assurance. Assurance comes from the fact that the gracious goodness of God preserves his holy saints by enabling them to persevere until the end and not to fall away. This is God's grace. These words call for the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said in John 10, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If one belongs to Christ, his strong right hand is always there holding us. Isn't this glorious? Isn't this encouraging? Doesn't this give us assurance? Rather, the question is, are we really his? In fact, in the Bible, the opposite of wicked is not non-wicked, but righteous. That is one who is ultimately being declared innocent by God in the first place. Now, we may not be as bad as the wicked here described, we think in our head, but unless we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Romans 5 tells us that we are still ungodly, enemies of God, unable to save ourselves. The truth is that in the end, there are only two camps. There are only two camps. You and I cannot claim to be reconciled on the basis of our not being as bad as this wicked. That's the truth. We are called to repent in the first place of our own sins and carry on doing that every day. And then we are called to be united by a faith that is truly, utterly reliant on Christ and not on our own merits on his death, in my place, and in your place. Asaph may have not had all the, the, the full picture, but we do. Christ is the refuge we read of in verse 28. And the works we are called to proclaim are his works, not ours before God. There is no boasting here. It's all that Christ did. That is his sinless life, his death and resurrection, his ascension. These are the works we are called to proclaim boldly. And when we do so, then the promise, this promise is for us. The promise that God promised long ago through Ezekiel, verse, uh, chapter 36, verses 25 and 26, where we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So this is true for us. This is for you. Stop finding refuge in your own selves, in your own works. That's not going to work. And please, lean fully on Christ. But finally... I don't want us to forget the present. So we've seen to, the, to this portrait, to the destiny, we've been encouraged, assured, and it would be a great place to stop, right? But there is one more thing that this psalm has to say us, and I hope this will be coming with us today, will be staying with us. And that is the words of this psalm for the present. 
Living a truly Christian life is really worth the effort, not just because of what will come next, but for what we can enjoy today. We can enjoy now, despite all the hardship of life. This is even more glorious. In fact, purity of heart is the gift of God giving himself of us, uh, himself to us, even now. By the gracious goodness of God, the pure in heart have in God himself a treasure now. Verses 25 and 26 are glorious. And if you have not done that before, go home, print it, write it on a piece of paper, and stick it on the fridge for this week. Whom have I in heaven now but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire that is now beside you. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that includes now. And this in turn means that we get to enjoy, be comforted and be encouraged by the nearness of God, by the promise of God. Can you believe that? Well, I hope you do because we are called to. God is near us. Paul captures this present and future reality so well in few words in Philippians 4, 5, where he says, the Lord is at hand. I mean, even the original, that word means two things. <laughs> that is then and now, here, near me, near you. The Lord is near us. And as Asaph says the same, nevertheless, as we read in verse 23 and 24, I am continually with you. You hold, that is now, my right hand. You guide me, that is now, with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me in glory. Now, no wonder, you know, he, he lands the psalm with verse 28 exclaiming, but for me, but for me, it is good to be near God and nowhere else. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. <laughs> The reality is that our glorious end is not simply a where, but our glorious end is a who. And this is key for us to understand. Not just a where, but a who. The Lord God Himself, as we read His name at the very end of this song. No doubt, therefore, that this, the purpose of this psalm is to show us where true prosperity really is where true prosperity and real satisfaction, real shalom, really can be found. So the Lord is sovereignly behind the scenes. Even when we think that He is not, He is there on His throne. Even when things seem to go the opposite, He is there. And He has already decreed an appropriate end for the wicked. And He's patiently waiting for the appointed time for His judgment. Moreover, and this is what the psalm leaves us with. We are called to persevere as he gives himself to us in order that we may do so. Therefore, if someone close to you or even you yourself in your heart are wondering or will ever wonder, even for a split second, is carrying the cross, is leading a faithful Christian life really worth it? Remember Asaph's testimony. Remember that keeping God, our treasure, and the end in sight makes living a truly Christian life really worth the effort. And there is no better place to end 
than the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes, by God's grace, we will. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can only say thank you for your word. Because we realize that without your word, we wouldn't be able to, to make it. But that's how you reveal yourself to us. That's how you reveal your presence to us. So as we go about our lives today, the following week, and indeed years to come, may we all remember that living a life for your glory, it is worth it. When we know that you are near us and that you are the very end we long for. Amen.